Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The issue is joined. Republicans led a very different view of where we're headed, but equity markets, well, they just seem to keep on climbing no matter what they hear. This is a special election edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. President Trump began rolling back Obama-era regulations early in his administration when he took the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The Trump administration also lowered U.S. vehicle emission standards, saying it would save automakers $100 billion in compliance costs. But just last week, California finalized its own fuel efficiency agreements with five automakers that are more closely in line with the Obama-era standards. The Trump administration has placed big emphasis on increasing use and production of fossil fuels. Republicans and Democrats are far apart on their climate policies. But Dan Briette, Secretary of Energy, says it is possible to have a bipartisan energy plan. Sure you can. I mean, natural gas is a very clean source, and we're developing technologies here at the, at the U.S. Department of Energy to make it even cleaner. We're also developing technologies to make you know, carbon-intense fuels like coal even cleaner. And of course, we always, you know, have had nuclear power for the last 70 years, which is entirely emissions-free. So, I mean, you can do both. You can have a renewable generation base and you can have an emissions-free baseload generation available to you. You just have to choose to do it. 
And I think that's what the fundamental problem is in places like California. They've relied too heavily or focused too heavily on renewable power, like wind and solar, at the exclusion of some of this baseload power, which you absolutely need in today's world to ensure that you have the energy you need when you need it. President Trump's administration has done a fair amount in trying to really, as I say, reinforce energy independence for the United States, relying in part, in significant part, on fossil fuels. What's left to be done if he's elected for a second term? What's on your agenda? Well, we need to continue to build out infrastructure. So, you know, as you and I have discussed in the past, we have done a great job in America of increasing our production making ourselves energy independent, relying on new technologies or newer technologies like horizontal frack, horizontal drilling and fracking to allow us to increase production of, of these resources here in the United States. Our challenge today is actually getting the product to market. It's building out pipeline infrastructure to get it to the oceans, to get it to the coastlines. It's building export facilities so that we can make this oil and gas available to the rest of the world because they're going to continue to use these types of fuels for the foreseeable future, perhaps as many as 40 to 50 years out. And I think it's important that as we do this, we maintain our posture in the world as the number one producer of oil and gas. And the reason we'd like to do that is because it gives us foreign policy options. The whole notion that we are able to, you know, for instance, the Secretary of State traveling to Sudan to perhaps normalize relations between Sudan and Israel, to work on deals like the UAE and Israel, those things couldn't have happened 40 years ago because we would have been afraid of the reaction in the Middle East and perhaps we would have endangered our national security by putting our oil supply at risk. We were entirely dependent upon them. The fact that we are independent today allows us to pursue these types of foreign policy uh, options. Energy is important in our society for all sorts of reasons, but it also is the source of a lot of employment. There are a lot of jobs in the energy industry. And one place where the Republicans and the Democrats seem to be two ships passing the night is how we're going to create more jobs. We heard uh, former Vice President Biden say he's going to create millions of more jobs by going to green energy. We heard Republicans criticize his policy for saying you're going to lose a lot of jobs. Which is it? Aren't we adding more jobs in renewables right now than we're adding in traditional energy? Yeah. Well, I, I can't really comment on Mr. Biden's comments as part of the campaign. I'm prohibited from doing that. So I will, I will stay away from that. But what I will comment on is that, you know, when we look at the technologies that have put us at the top of the world in terms of energy production, hydraulic fracturing, we just mentioned, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce tells me that if we were to do away with that technology, we would lose approximately 19 million jobs over the next few years. And, you know, it's not a question of retraining those people and putting them into uh, renewable technologies. You know, certainly you can do that. And people may be forced to do that if you, if, you, if you do away with this technology. But the challenge with that, David, is that the, the salaries, according to the unions that we have talked to, the salaries in the oil and gas business are about twice what we're seeing in the renewable energy space. So it's one thing to suggest that you might retrain people and put them into a new role, but you're also giving them a 50% pay cut, according to these unions. Fascinating. Just briefly here at the end, give us some sense of the investment you're making in new technology at the Department of Energy. Well, it's enormous. I mean, we're across the board. We spend about $16 billion a year uh, just in basic science, basic research that leads to these technologies that we just discussed. I'm very excited about what's just over the horizon with regard to advanced nuclear reactors. I think we're right on the cusp of not only smaller reactors, higher density energy sources for America uh, that will be connected to microgrids in some cases. We're also excited about moving perhaps even beyond fission energy, nuclear energy as we know it today, to fusion energy. So it's a very exciting world. 
that we're about to face. Is there a real prospect of fusion energy? People have been talking about that forever. That's true. Yeah, they have been. But we've made real progress. We've turned around some of the management issues around a large facility in France right. uh, known as the Eater facility. But we also have private sector companies here in the United States who have made tremendous advances. Uh, General Atomics, several others out in California. They're doing a great job. That was Secretary of Energy Dan Briette. Coming up, President Trump is running on his record of talking tough on trade. We talk with Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross on what the president has accomplished so far. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. As a candidate in 2016, President Trump promised to make trade deals that would be fair to American workers and businesses. Over the past three years, he raised tariffs on imports, renegotiated a trade deal with Canada and Mexico, and brokered a phase one deal with China. In spite of some of the progress on the trade deal, U.S. exports to China fell by nearly 8% from 2016 to 2019, and China continues to fall short of its promises to buy U.S. goods. The U.S. trade deficit narrowed slightly in June as global lockdown restrictions from COVID-19 eased, but the recovery is expected to be uneven. We asked Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross what President Trump has accomplished on his trade agenda so far. Well, in terms of China, a lot has been accomplished. Uh, On the enforcement side, we really have been enforcing quite vigorously. You're familiar with the actions we've taken on Huawei. You're familiar with the actions that we've taken on ZTE, two major telecom companies. Most recently, we've been working very hard on the semiconductor part of things, because while China does have technology, we still have the best software design and the best fabrication equipment for semiconductors. So we're trying to avoid them taking unfair advantage of our technology. Technology is really important because while protecting things like steel and aluminum help take care of today's world, technology is tomorrow's world. So that's a big deal. Very recently, we put on the entity list of 500 companies since 2017. Awful lot of those are Chinese companies, and that's because they are the ones that seem to be doing the most to violate sanctions, to violate human rights, and most recently also to create problems in Hong Kong. So that's been a big, big series. And then, of course, you have the tariffs, the Section 301 tariffs that USTR imposed on China. So the cumulative effect of all this is enormously greater than the long-term cumulative effect of everything that had been done pre-Trump. Mr. Secretary, as you uh, think about a second four-year term for President Trump, there's a lot of concern that we may be entering into what some people call a tech cold war with China. Do you believe at the end of four years with President Trump still in office, we would be more disengaged with China when it comes to technology? Well, first of all, the cold war in technology started long before President Trump. It wasn't only under President Trump that the Chinese were stealing intellectual property wasn't only under President Trump that the Chinese were requiring joint ventures 
and lo and behold, the joint venture partners required technology transfers. So this abuse of technology, which you've called the technology cold war, really had its origins many years before. The difference is President Trump is mounting the ramparts and starting to defend us against the technology war. Then he's doing it with the whole variety of measures that I described before, but he's doing it also in another way in terms of the big initiative that was just announced about a billion dollars for further artificial intelligence research and quantum computing research. Those are two of the most significant technological advances yet to come. And so putting money here, uh, helping our companies go further is a very good thing. So there are two edges to what we're doing. The one is clamping down on their abuses and the other is fostering U.S. technology. We've been helping to propagate in the Congress Senator Cornyn's legislation relating to semiconductor funding so that we can bring more fabs back to the U.S. I hope the Congress will go along with that when they go back into session. And if they do, that'll be a very, very good thing for America. Secretary Ross, one of the things that we have heard a good deal out of out of the Trump administration is the fact that the coronavirus originated in China. There is a lot of concern that they were not forthcoming and disclosing what happened. A lot of blame and finger pointing, let's be frank. Is there any serious contemplation of possible sanctions against China coming out of the coronavirus and how they handle it? We've seen sanctions from the Trump administration in other situations. We believe that they did not handle the coronavirus very well. Nobody knows right now whether the original outburst was something deliberate, was it leakage from a laboratory that was inadvertent, or how it exactly started. But what we do know is that at the same time as they blocked air travel from Wuhan to Beijing, Shanghai, and other big Chinese cities, they didn't block travel to the U.S., to Europe, and to Africa. That was a deliberate decision, and obviously that contributed mightily to the spread of coronavirus to the United States. Second, they've not been very forthcoming to our health authorities about what was actually going on over there. And in fact, as I understand it, they've now prohibited their virologists from doing joint papers with American virologists trying to sort through coronavirus. So those are not very helpful things. There's also some severe question as to how forthcoming they were in their relations with the WTO. So there's a lot to worry about in their handling of coronavirus. But be that as it may, it's pretty clear on a national basis, the incidence of new cases is coming down quite a bit. I'd been up around 76,000 on a seven-day average. Now it's down into 40,000. So it's still too many, but direction of change is a very good one. Plus, every day we're having announcements about a potential cure. Every day we're having announcements about a potential vaccine. We're going to get there, 
and want to get there pretty quickly, we will get this ugly monster under control. And the decisive action taken by the president, both cutting off travel uh, to China early on, despite the objections of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, was a very wise thing. That was U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. Coming up, the U.S. healthcare system is facing its biggest test from COVID-19. We talk with Ken Langone, chairman of the NYU Langone Medical Center, about what the pandemic says about our healthcare system. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. COVID-19 is shining a light on the state of health care in the United States. President Trump has made no secret of what he thinks of the Affordable Care Act. We have to repeal and replace Obamacare. We can repeal it, but the best is repeal and replace. And let's get going. President Trump's Jobs and Tax Cuts Act of 2017 scrapped the ACA individual mandate, but his request for the Supreme Court to strike down the entire law is still pending. Healthcare spending grew 4.6% in 2018, reaching $3.6 trillion. Healthcare expenditures as a share of the nation's GDP has been growing steadily as tax revenue as a share of GDP comes down. We asked Ken Langone, chair of the Board of Trustees of NYU Langone and co-founder of Home Depot, what COVID-19 taught us about U.S. healthcare? The virus, to me, is rapidly receding in impact and importance. For example, the results in New York City hospitals are dramatically lower than they were back in April. We, whether it's herd immunity, whether it's compliance, if you wear a mask, everybody wore a mask, 90% of the problem would go away because that's the easiest way to convey infection. So I am very optimistic about how we're learning to deal with it. For example, one of the things we learned about at NYU was we had patients who have it lying prone, lying on their bellies. And believe it or not, it had a significant effect on their dependence on a ventilator, which if you don't have to put somebody on a ventilator, God, please don't. Uh, I think we've addressed the issue of supply of PPE successfully. And I think the pharmaceutical industry, by the way, deserves a lot of credit for the effort they've all made collectively, not with a profit motive. 
I believe, based upon hearing people smarter than me, that we'll have at least one successful vaccine by Christmas and maybe more, maybe more, maybe multiples of one. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's the antibody therapy, which looks very promising. And that could be, now that doesn't prevent you from getting it, but God forbid, if you get it, it's going to be very helpful in treating you. And, and if you haven't had it, it might give you an immunity for a couple of months. So the vaccine, obviously, is meant to have a longer duration. As with any issue, I think the president made some good decisions. I think he made some unwise decisions. The good decision was jumping on it right away regarding flights in from China. I wish he had a different stand on masks because I said earlier that masks to me are a very critical part of the defense against the pandemic. So I wish that he had embraced masks sooner and more enthusiastically. I would feel better if he had a little higher regard for the pharmaceutical industry. Now, let me say this to you, David, and I want to warn you and I, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am a very major investor in the healthcare industry in a number of companies. My biggest position in the industry being Eli Lilly. I give the industry straight A's for pulling together these last four months and doing what they could to help the country out of this morass. Uh, I think the effort they're all making now on a vaccine is very good. And I think their motive, thank God, is not their bottom line, but alleviate the tragedy that it's had on humanity around the world. And that's, that's to me, one of the redeeming features of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so I would say he's done a lot of great things, and I wish he'd done this. Uh, his, his passion for this hydrochloroquine, to me, uh, I'm not, I don't think it, it was merited. I don't think it's anything like the drug that they thought it would be. It has purposes. It's been around a long time and it's effective for different conditions and it might help a few people through the, through the infection of, of COVID. But so what I'm saying is I like some of the things he did. I, I like the fact that he, because they were, they were arguing with each other the last couple of weeks that he issued an executive order to help out. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with his compassion and his sensitivity to the healthcare delivery system we have in America because NYU, we lost in one month $500 million. There were hospitals in New York that lost even more than we did. And thank God they got that first bill through and nominally it's a loan. Uh, if it is a loan, we have to pay it back. That means we lost $500 million. Because don't forget, in that period of time, we stopped doing everything except dealing with COVID patients. We were overwhelmed by the number of people that came in. So we had nothing, we could do nothing but focus on dealing with the epidemic or the pandemic. So that's the best answer I can give you today. That was Ken Langone, Home Depot co-founder and chairman of the NYU Langone Medical Center. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston 
from Bloomberg Radio. To take us through the economy under President Trump, we convene now our virtual roundtable of contributors Larry Summers, who served under President Clinton as Treasury Secretary and then as the director of the National Economic Council under President Obama. And Glenn Hubbard, who served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. So let me start, since we're talking about a candidate for President Trump on the Republican side, Glenn, let me start with you. Uh, when you hear the plans that were being told for the second four years, will they get us that full employment that President Trump really promised? Well, I think conventions are obviously great theater. The president was pointing back to the pre-COVID world, and he could point to some good successes. He did have success with the economy. Unemployment was very low. Market valuations were very high. GDP growth was solid. I, I think he could well point to the Tax Cut uh, and Jobs Act, uh, and he could point to his regulatory agenda. Having said that, there's uncertainty about trade policy. And what missing was missing to me was a sense more of the future. Uh, he talks about make America great again. I'd like to see make America flourish again. What would it take to get every American to participate and prosper? I think there are ideas there on the Republican side, but I wish more of them had been at the GOP convention. Uh, so, Larry, let me bring you in on the other side of this, as it were. Is what you heard from uh, former Vice President Biden going to get us to full employment either? When he's talking about something like $3.8 trillion in new taxes, is that what this economy needs right now? This economy needs a serious program of public investment. And some part of that public investment program will pay for itself. And some part of that public investment program is rational to finance with debt. But some part of that public investment program probably should be paid for with tax increases, especially when those tax increases would make the economy fairer and would also make the economy uh, more efficient. We don't serve any useful purpose by failing to collect $500 billion a year, most of it from the highest income people, because we don't do a competent job of enforcing uh, the tax law. We could move towards fixing that and raise a trillion dollars over the next decade from high-income people and close tax shelters at the same time. We've got a variety of loopholes and special breaks that divert resources into inefficient uses and cost the government a ton of revenue. The famous carried interest provision is one example uh, in uh, that regard. Those are candidates for rational tax reform that at the same time would finance government doing what it uh, needs to do. I'm for that. I think there are people who have the idea that caused by envy, we should have tax increases in order to tear down the rich. I think that would be a mistake. There are people who have the idea that we should have tax increases for the sake of having tax increases or just as a device for reducing uh, the deficit. I think that's a mistake. But should we pay for some portion over time of the huge public investment we need? Yes, I think uh, we should. And I think that's the spirit in which Vice President Biden has uh, talked about uh, tax increases. So, Glenn, what about it? You hear from Larry that it's a matter of public investment, which really is what we need right now. And the Republican side, from President Trump, we said, let's cut the capital gains tax. We'll have private investment. Is that the most efficient way, really, of getting investment, or is Larry right? Well, I think public investment is very important. We need a strong infrastructure program, not just physical, but also technological. We're seeing that play out before our very eyes. 
it's hard to disagree with Larry on issues like avoiding tax avoidance. Of course, we should do that. Having said that, is Vice President Biden serious about a large tax increase on business and business owners in a recession or an incipient recovery? We've got very large proposed increases in the corporation tax and individual tax rates and the most radical expansion of the payroll tax not to be used for Social Security, but to be used for other purposes. So the Biden plan may have been developed at a time and a place, but we're not at that time and that place. So while I don't disagree with Larry, it's not really the Biden plan. Okay, so fairly quickly, Larry, sort of more or less yes or no. Do you think Vice President Biden is serious about that $3.8 trillion tax increase? I think Vice President Biden is serious about a major increase in public investment and paying for an important part of it, though not necessarily all of it. And I think that's the right thing to do. I do not think that it's anybody's intention to impose a major new set of austerity on uh, the current economy. Glenn and I may have a disagreement. Uh, The business community before the Trump tax cuts thought it would be fantastic if the corporate tax rate were cut to 25%. In fact, it was cut to 21%. There were a set of tax cuts proposed for non-corporate businesses that nobody was even asking for. I think we should repeal and replace some of that and use the revenues to push the economy forward for everyone. And I think that is the right thing to do. that's the spirit of the of the Biden plan, as I understand. Larry, I think you get a victory lap this week because over five years ago, you wrote in the Financial Times, and I'll quote it, the Fed could inject much needed confidence in the economy today and minimize future risks by announcing and following a strategy of not raising rates until it sees the whites of inflation's eyes. Now, as best I understand, that's sort of what Jay Powell said this week, isn't it? I think it's more or less exactly what he said. I think he said two important things. He made clear that the 2% figure was a two-sided target. After a decade of being below 2%, it would be okay with him if we were above 2% for a while and that we weren't being religious about 2% as a ceiling. That's what I and many others have been advocating for a long time. And he also said that he was going to reject what has been a Fed staff preoccupation for a long time, the Phillips curve idea that uh, we should stop the party before it gets started by uh, raising rates when it looks like the economy is going to be really strong and unemployment is going to be low and wages are going to rise fast and the last last people to be hired are going to be hired and employers are going to be reaching for less skilled workers and those with some uh, blot on their backgrounds uh, that we're not going to cut off the economy's growth when those kinds of things happen until we actually see uh, inflation materialize. And I think those are two welcome, welcome and frankly overdue changes in uh, perspective uh, from the Fed. There are things that uh, I've been calling for for half a dozen years. Uh, in recognition of the fact that our economy's basic problem isn't an inflationary gap. It's a deflationary gap where savings exceeds investment and that pushes interest rates too far down, causes uh, money to flow into 
liquid assets that then get inflated and cause bubbles and uh, risks too much sluggishness in the economy. So I think the Fed has moved a substantial distance in the right direction. I think they've still got some way to go uh, in terms of recognizing the limits of what they're able to do and putting the right kind of pressure on other policies to push demand forward. Well, let's talk about those limits. Exactly. Glenn, let's assume you agree with Larry that essentially more or less better late than never. But at the same time, is this the cure for what ails us right now? Because this doesn't get rid of the coronavirus. It doesn't get increased productivity. It doesn't get growth going necessarily, does it? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good step. I, too, have called for average inflation targeting for some time. But it's not a free lunch. I mean, it does give the Fed room to let the economy run hot. That's a good thing. It gives room for interest rates and yield curve to steepen. That, too, would be a good thing in the present environment. However, it may cause misallocation uh, in capital markets relative to, say, a fiscal policy response. And it isn't going to cure the coronavirus or supply side. So, yes, we can say good job to the Fed for the Jackson Hole announcement. But I don't think it's time for the Fed, at least, to be taking a victory lap. I think Washington needs to focus on fiscal policy. Chair Powell's doing his part, but it's only a part. Is there another danger, Larry, actually, which we might call mission creep, borrowed from the military and I think Vietnam? Is there mission creep here? Because as you read what Jay Powell had to say, he was talking about all sorts of things, like really uh, fixing inequalities in income and, and wages, addressing problems of municipalities. Is that something really the Fed is competent to do? I think Glenn and I are, again, in violent agreement. Uh, what the Fed did is necessary. It is a long way from sufficient to address America's economic uh, challenges. Because the Fed, frankly, has been more successful and more competent in the last few years than other parts of uh, the government, there's a tendency to turn to the Fed to solve every problem. I don't think the Fed can fix the environment and make America green. I don't think the Fed is the right instrument for dealing with struggling municipalities. I don't think the Fed is the right instrument for addressing racial inequality. So I think the Fed's new emphasis on a strong economy, its move away from a single-minded uh, focus on preempting inflation is overdue and uh, appropriate. But I don't think we should turn ourselves into an economy run uh, by the Fed. Our many thanks right now to Larry Summers of Harvard and Glenn Hubbard of Columbia. Uh, both of them are contributors to Wall Street Week for this virtual roundtable. And that does it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.